0: As you're praying, yeah, thinking about all the plans that so many people have had, and then this coronavirus thing breaks out, all of those plans are um, with, uh, with Christ. They were thinking, you know, maybe the kingdom of God is, is about to start, whatever they thought that would look like, maybe uh, overcoming the Roman Empire, and then Jesus gets crucified, and it seems like... Seems like all of those plans are dashed to the ground, and just the the sense of the loss of direction, the confusion, and the uncertainty that they must have experienced in those in those days, as Jesus, their leader, is dead and he's in the tomb. And so, what we're experiencing right now with this coronavirus, we we experience a lot of uncertainty. We experience a lot of um, dashed hopes. Um, and it's good for us to remember that God's people have been here before, and the disciples were in a place somewhat similar to this, except far more extreme with the loss of their leader, with the loss of Jesus Christ himself. But we know the end of the story. So that's what we celebrate today. Whenever whenever we say the word Easter— You know, a lot of different things might come to our minds. Pastel colors, um, egg hunts, maybe uh, special lunches with family and friends. Those of us who have, you know, we're familiar with the meaning behind Easter, we think of the empty tomb. We think of the resurrection. That tomb that was a borrowed tomb where the dead body of Jesus was laid. And that same tomb that was empty and jesus had had risen from the dead but going a few steps back we remember we we think you know jesus was laid in that tomb because he had died you know he'd been crucified and why had he been crucified to really understand the joy of easter morning it wasn't it wasn't merely a friend coming back from the dead as joyful as that would be we have to really understand the the darkness and the misery of the crucifixion on the friday before so this morning we as emmanuel baptist we need to remember god's faithfulness we need to have our feet firmly planted on the solid rock of god's truthfulness in the midst of this pandemic And God's dedication to being faithful is nowhere more clearly seen than in the gospel itself, especially in the cross and in the resurrection. God's faithfulness. But why did Christ need to die? Why did he go as he did, so determined to face his own doom, his own death? He went willingly to the cross. And we answer, you know, we died for our sins. But what does that really mean? Did it have to be that way? Couldn't God have devised some other way for sinners to be saved? To really understand the empty tomb, we need to understand the cross. And to really understand the cross, we need to understand, we need to go a little bit farther back and understand the garden. You see, the story of Easter begins where all stories began, in the Garden of Eden. The story of the empty tomb begins in a place where nobody died. Where death was only a word, an ominous, a mysterious sounding word no doubt, but still just a word with no doctors or hospital beds or heart monitors to give it any meaning. The story of Easter begins in Eden. Several weeks ago, one of the last times that we were all together in person, I preached on Genesis 1 and 2, the account of God's creation of the world, how God is the source of all life. He created us in his image. He's the source of all good. He made the world good originally. He's the Lord of all things. As the creator, he owns all things. In the beginning, there was no disease. There was no COVID-19. There was no death. No earthquakes or tornadoes, just a beautiful garden, a perfect world, and a perfect man and woman surrounded by an abundance of delicious fruits and not a care in the world. But then we come to Genesis 3, the hinge on which the rest of the story of Scripture turns. So let's read together. If you you have your Bible with you, please turn to Genesis 3. And we'll take it section by, she- by section this morning. Before we do that, let me just pray that God would give me clarity as I speak. Dear God, please uh, help me as I speak, as, I, as we consider your word together, as we consider where the story of Easter began. Why there was a need for a tomb in the first place. And why the, that tomb was empty on the third day. Father help us as we consider may you create faith in us as we listen strengthen our faith in you as the trustworthy and the truthful and faithful god who never lies in jesus name amen so genesis 3 and starting in verse 1 it says now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the lord god had made he said to the woman your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let's pause there for just a moment before we read on. What's going on here? Verse 1 of Genesis 3 introduces this new character to the garden, the serpent. He's said to be crafty and cunning. We aren't given his backstory here, but we do know that God had created him. It says that he was more cunning than any of the other Beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So he's a created being. He's not some self-existent, eternal being as God is. He's a creature. We also see that that he talks. We aren't told that any of the other animals at this time spoke, but this serpent, this snake, does speak. And if you familiarize yourself with the rest of the Bible, you come to realize that that behind this serpent was another being speaking through him. Perhaps Eve was taken a bit off guard. You know, who was this creature? Maybe he's misinformed or a bit confused. Maybe I can help him out a bit. I'll see if I can correct this confusion that he has now notice though, that when Eve recounts God's command to the serpent, it's not exactly as God had given it back in Genesis 2. Whenever she repeats what God had said, she leaves out the lavish generosity of God. In Genesis 2.15, when he'd commanded Adam, he said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. So free license to eat of any of these many, many trees. God prohibited eating from one tree, But when Eve recounts God's command, she just says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And then she adds, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And if we look closely, that's not exactly what God had said. What did God actually say Eve? Listen, if we're unclear about what God has said, We'll be unprepared whenever we're faced with temptation. We won't know what exactly God requires or why. It's important for us to know what God has said. Verse 4 says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now that's a direct contradiction of what God had said. Not only will you not die, he says, but your eyes will be opened. you'll gain great wisdom and insight, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And not only that, but God knows this. You see what he did there? He just cast doubt on God's trustworthiness by giving a contradictory explanation of this tree. He's basically saying, you won't die. God's God's not telling the truth. God's lying to you. You won't die. And he cast doubt doubt on God's goodness. God knows that there's something wonderful to be had by eating this fruit, something that's good for you, and God doesn't want you to have it. God's holding out on you. So the serpent, Satan, he offered a counter-wisdom to God's wisdom. Eating of this tree, he's saying, is perfectly safe. In fact, it will lead to the truly blessed life. God is holding you back. Satan wants us to think that there's no danger in sinning. He wants us to think, you know, it's, it's perfectly safe. Nobody will find out. Nobody will know. Everybody does this. It's no big deal. He wants us to believe that a fulfilled life awaits us. If only we'll take a little risk. You know, God, God is holding you back. Satan wants to convince us that sin is safe and that it leads to blessing. And the forbidden fruit, if we look closely, it, it looks safe. I mean, this, it, it looks quite good. Consider the tree of the knowledge of good and evil It wasn't as if it was covered in poison ivy and thorns and dripping with poison. Dr. Owen Strand notes that this tree, made by God, had branches teeming with delicious and appealing fruit. It wasn't ugly or off-putting. He says, the gifts of God will not seem gross to us, even as we partake in them, in truth, misuse them in a sinful way. Up to the moment we consume them, they will delight us, dazzle us, and even intoxicate us. So many of the temptations around us are to take something that God has created good in, in a certain way, to be enjoyed in a certain context, and to misuse it, to abuse it in a way that God has not permitted. Well, Eve listened to the serpent. She looked at the tree and she began to believe what he was saying. Let's read on in verse six. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave also, she gave, she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate we see here that she has ceased believing what God had said. She doubted his truthfulness and his goodness. Whenever she looked at this tree, there should have been a big flashing red warning sign in her mind that, says, that said not good for food, not safe for consumption. That's what faith in God would have looked like here. But she has come to believe that this tree actually is good for food. Of course, the tree was good in itself, but it wasn't good in the way that she was thinking and believing that it was. In God's creation, back in the last two chapters, we read this phrase over and over again, that God created and then he saw that what he created was good. God saw the light, that it was good. Well, now we read that Eve saw something and that she saw that it this something was good. But, What she was seeing as good was something that God has said not good. This tree was not good for food. And that's exactly how Eve had come to see it, believing Satan's claim. The point here is that Eve is acting as God has acted in the first two chapters of Genesis. She's making her own determination about the goodness of something, and she's doing it in contradiction to what God has said. And people do the same thing today, don't they? We want to be a law to ourselves, naturally. We want to decide what's good and what's bad. We want to do so independently of God. We want to follow our own hearts rather than God's will. We act as if we're God and we get to determine right and wrong for ourselves. Because deep down within, this same poisonous weed of perverted ambition grows within us that grew within our first parents. We don't want God to be God, we want us to be God. In our desire to be God, we rebel against his rightful rule over us as our creator. We reject his word and his will for us. And in doing so, we reject him. It may have seemed like a small thing to take a bite of this fruit, but in reality, it was cosmic treason against the king of the universe. It was a rejection of the very one who had given them life. Now, lest we go too hard on Eve here, notice where Adam is the whole time. He's not been, as one man wrote, he's not been off cultivating a rough Patch of brush, and then he's come upon his wife and you know, just seeking a snack, oblivious to the conversation she'd been having. It says he was with her when she gave him the food, when she gave him the fruit. He knew perfectly well what God had said. Adam knew, but he sat by and he watched passively as the serpent pulled the wool of deception over Eve's eyes and slowly entangled her in the barbed wire of lies. The fault wasn't Eve's alone. In fact, as we read the rest of scripture, it's Adam who bears the main responsibility. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, and at this point, we need to ask, who had been telling the truth? God? The serpent? Would their eyes be opened as the serpent had said? Was it really safe to eat this fruit? As we read on, we see that their eyes were opened. But it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. It wasn't what the serpent had led them to believe that it was going to be. So let's read on, starting verse 7. From which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, there we have it. Adam and Eve had an eye opening experience. They did receive new knowledge. As Satan had said, they, they would have their eyes opened. They thought, as the serpent had led them to believe, that this would be a wonderful knowledge, a knowledge worth having, a divine wisdom of good and evil. But instead, it was an experiential knowledge of good and evil. They knew by experience what it was to be good and what it was to feel the guilt and the shame of evil. What a deceiver Satan is. Satan's suggestion wasn't all it was chalked up to be. But would God's warning prove to be true? You know, Satan here, we see how he's lied. We see how he's deceived. But would God's warning turn out to be true? Would he really put to death his most prized and cherished creatures, those made in his own image? As Adam and Eve make a desperate attempt to cover their shame from their their sin with some fig leaves, right then, Along comes God, and they run. They run away from the very one that they were created to run to. What a tragic picture of what sin does. No longer is there close fellowship between God in the joy and sinlessness of perfection, but now there's fear and shame. They hide in the trees. It was a tree that undid them. And now no tree except one can save them. There's no hiding from God. He knows exactly what's up. But nevertheless, he patiently calls out to them. He questions them. You know, would, they, would they honestly confess their sin before God? He calls out to the man first. He's, he's the one primarily responsible as the one who is supposed to keep and protect the garden. He was the leader, and so he gets called to account first. But we see that Adam, he doesn't take responsibility for his actions. Instead, we see the first instance of a very familiar phenomenon, blame shifting. He blames the woman, the woman that you gave me, God. You catch that? He's saying, God, you gave me this woman. So not only is he blaming Eve, but he's actually ultimately blaming God. And the woman's response, she says, well, the devil made me do it. You know, we're, we all tend to be experts at self-justification. We'll blame anyone, even God, in order to avoid taking responsibility for our actions. In fact, we'll go so far as even to not just deceive others, but even to deceive ourselves. This is one reason that Christians are called to hold one another accountable in real, face to face, life on life relationships in the local church, under the caring, watchful oversight of the church leaders, of the pastors, the shepherds of the church. You know, sin is deceptive, it doesn't just seek to deceive others, but it deceives us. And if if you think that you're too smart to be deceived by sin and that you, you can live as if you don't need other Christians speaking into your life, correcting, rebuking you, well, let me just gently warn you. you may be deceived. It's deception to think that we're above being deceived. This is why we're called as Christians to exhort one another daily lest anyone be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, as it says in Hebrews 3.13. The modern idea that the Christian life is, that's just basically between you and God. It's just your own private thing. Well, that's actually very foreign and anti-biblical. God designs Christian, the Christian life to be lived out in community with other Christians in a local church. Well, God, he doesn't buy Adam and Eve's excuses. Their defense doesn't hold up in his court. God moves to sentence them. He sentences the serpent, which we'll return to in a moment. He sentences the woman to pain and childbearing. And to the man, he sentences him to pain and providing food. Work won't be a joy anymore. It'll be laborious, difficult, painful in the marriage relationship, which was supposed to be marked by love, now often to be marked by tension. But would God actually sentence his most cherished creatures to death? Would God actually go that far? We find out, yes, he would. Just as he had said he would. He is faithful. He cannot deny himself. He never lies. Adam and Eve would die just as God had warned them that they would. So consider for a moment the seriousness of sin. This is how much God hates it. This is how seriously God takes sin. Though he clearly loves the human race, he's also a God of justice. And his glory is more important than our very lives. God had promised that in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so, rather than God to be found a liar, to make promises that he doesn't keep, to tolerate rebellion against his lordship, rather than allow that, God puts Adam and Eve to death. As the scriptures say, the wages of sin is death. But wait a second. You know, as we we read the story, Adam and Eve don't drop dead, do they? I mean, they had children after the fall into sin. They lived quite a long time after they had Cain and Abel and Seth. I mean, I, last I checked, Adam lived over 900 years. What we need to understand is how the Bible defines death it's more than your body shutting down and the breath leaving your lungs for the final time. That's certainly part of death. But that's not death in its fullness. What we need to understand is that there's not only physical death, but there's spiritual death. We read of this second type of death in Ephesians 2. Paul, writing to the Ephesian Christians, says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. A few verses later, he says that God, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive, Together with Christ, by grace of you, you have been saved. So if you look closely at this type of death, it's not physical death. Because when we were dead in trespasses and sins, we were still walking according to the, the passions of the flesh. We were still doing things. It's not like we were dead in a coffin somewhere. But this type of death, this spiritual death, is being dead towards God. Made a spiritual being, Adam cannot now commune with God by nature. He does not know the Lord. He's sealed off from the divine. Fellowship with God is lost. Instead, there's a deep despising of God that takes root in the very soul, in the very heart of fallen humanity. There's a huge gap, a great canyon between God and man. We're separated from God by our sin. that, That canyon is a gap that we can't bridge on our own. Spiritual death. The Bible also talks about the second death. Read that in Revelation 21, 8, for example. This is the living death of hell. The eternal separation from God's goodness and grace. Forever under his judgment and wrath. So spiritual death. That very day, as God had promised, Adam and Eve died spiritually. And they were also, that very day, cut off. From eternal life. They were cut off from the tree of life, which, if they could have eaten of, we read, they would have lived forever. Adam and Eve learned the hard way that rejecting the one who gave them life was to embrace death. They got on the wrong side of God's faithfulness. They found out the hard way that God is unwaveringly true. He never lies. So Adam and Eve found that out the hard way, but what does that have to do with us? Well, we too died that day. The whole human race died spiritually when our first parents chose to reject God. Romans 5 18 and 19 reads, One trespass, speaking of Adam's sin, led to condemnation. For all men. It says, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So it's not just the fact that we ourselves sin, though we do, and that we're guilty before God because of our sin, but more deeply, more fundamentally, we are connected in some mysterious way to our first parents who represented us in the Garden of Eden and who sinned and in their sin as first corinthians 15:22 says in adam all die that doesn't that doesn't strike us as very fair does it i mean that just it doesn't it doesn't sit well with us and yet that's clearly what scripture teaches we are sinners and you know we we don't like it but who are we to sit in judgment over the god who created us this is a, one of the hardest truths in all of the Bible. But as we'll see in a moment, there's a very bright side to it as well. But for now, each one of us are born spiritually dead. And one, one evidence of this spiritual death that we're all born with is that nobody has to teach us to do wrong. We're not born holy or even neutral. We're not a blank slate. Sin comes naturally to us. We don't have to be taught how to be selfish or how to lie or how to be mean. It's because we're born spiritually dead. As Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in in, in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Genesis 3 is a heavy chapter. It's a very humbling chapter. But it's not a hopeless chapter. It's here right where everything goes wrong, that we catch the first glimmer of hope. It's here that the stage is set for the greatest hope in all of the universe. Consider, first of all, that God does not immediately throw Adam and Eve into hell. He lets them live, at least physically, for a time. Then notice God's kindness to clothe Adam and Eve. In verse 21, it says he made garments of skin and clothed them. In God's grace, he covers their shame. You know, in the religions of man, in in human religion, the fig leaves of good works are an attempt to cover the guilt and the shame of our bad deeds, of our sin. They're an attempt to make us acceptable to God, to have our, our good outweigh our bad. But Like Adam and Eve's fig leaves, they give us no covering before a holy God who demands perfection and who will punish sin. We can't do enough good to outweigh our bad. We need God to cover our shame. We need him to provide us a perfect covering. God is honest. Man has sinned. Man must die. This could have been the end of the story, but it's not. As Adam and Eve try to come to grips with the reality that God was, in fact, telling the truth, right then, God gives them good news. God gives them hope. God gives them a promise, something to believe in. Look at verse 15. We find this one little sentence verse 15 God curses the serpent and says I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel Now Adam ought to have crushed the serpent's head but he failed but another would come this second Adam he would not fail he would crush the serpent's head and thus crush his power. This crushing of the head, this bruising of the head was a symbol of utter defeat. It would be a hard fought victory. Both sides would receive injuries, but a wound to the head is more decisive than a wound to the heel. This verse is a promise of victory over the serpent, by the seed of the woman, by the offspring of the woman. And there would one day come one, born without sin, born of a virgin, the woman's offspring, without a man. This man would be tempted by Satan, not once, but three times, and maybe even more. When he was tempted, he wasn't in a garden surrounded by every reason to trust God, every indicator of God's faithfulness. He wasn't surrounded by delicious fruit when he was tempted he was in a cursed and fallen world he was in a desert with no food the last time he saw a meal was over a month before and yet though satan tempted him there he refused he would not eat the devil's bread he lived his whole life perfectly he always obeyed became obedient even unto death even the death of the cross as romans 5:19 says here's that hard truth that we talked about a minute ago that in adam's sin and his disobedience all of us were made sinners he is our representative but here's the positive side of that of that truth romans 5:19 says for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous by the one man's obedience. The many, though they've been disobedient, though they haven't obeyed God perfectly, they will be made righteous through their representative. He died on the cross for sinners, the righteous representing the guilty in the place of the guilty. He hung there bleeding, beaten beyond recognition, dying, for sins he did not commit, stripped of his clothes and hanging there for the sins of Adam's sons and daughters. Remember how God had clothed Adam and Eve graciously before they left the garden? The first Adam was clothed by God. His shame was covered. The last Adam, Jesus, bore our shame, uncovered, exposed, On the cross. Getting to the question we opened with why did Jesus need to die? Couldn't God have saved sinners without the cross? The cross was necessary because God is faithful, because God is true to his word. Unlike Satan, God never lies. You will surely die was the sentence that hung over all of us, dooming us all. And yet God would reward sinners, those who had sinned with eternal life and not kill them, not destroy them forever. How can God do that and be true? How can God reward criminals, those who have broken his law, for righteousness that they've not done and give them heaven and what they deserve is hell? How can he waive the death sentence he promised as the wages of sin? How can God do that and still be just? How can God do that and not be a liar? Only by the death of Christ could God both remain true to his word and at the same time express his love to his sinful creatures, rescuing them from death. In taking a human body and dying, God the Son, Jesus Christ, suffered the penalty for sin. Promised all the way back in Genesis 2:17, thus maintaining God's truthfulness. God is truthful even to the point of the crucifixion, even when it costs that much. Colossians 2:14 gives us insight into the justice of God and pardoning our sins. How can God do that and still be just? How can God let us off the hook without punishing us? Speaking of believers in Christ, it says that he has forgiven all our trespasses. How did he do it? Did he just sweep them under the rug, hide them from view, just ignore them, let them go unpunished? It says, how did he do it? It says Colossians 2.14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, charges dropped this he set aside how nailing it to the cross nailing it to the cross that record of debt that infinite sin debt with its legal demand that we perish cut off from God forever in hell Jesus paid it all being nailed to the cross under God's wrath in our place God is faithful. God's dedication to being faithful is seen most clearly where it cost him the most, at the cross. So are you, are you trusting the faithful God this morning? As, as so much is going on around us or within us, you know, in our lives, in our hearts, you know, the world has gone crazy all around us. Are we trusting this faithful God Are we relying on him no matter what? No matter how dark the world looks, no matter how uncertain our circumstances look, are we remembering his faithfulness? He was faithful even to the cross. He'll be faithful to his promises whenever it's, they're much easier to fulfill and they cost him far less than they cost him on the cross. Perhaps you're hearing this and you've not believed in this Christ. What you must do is repent and believe. So repenting, by faith, see your sin as God sees it. Recognize it and confess it as cosmic treason against God. It's sin. There's no excuse for it. Repentance, agreeing with God about your sin, having a change of heart and turning away from loving it, turning to God. Loving him, renouncing that which he hates, and bowing to him as your true king. And believing, believing that what he did on the cross was enough to pay for all of my wrongs. I don't have to try to have my good outweigh my bad. I don't have to try to cover my shame with my own good deeds, my own performance. I just need to receive that perfect covering that Jesus provided in paying for all that I have ever done. Believing that when he said it is finished, that he meant it. There's nothing I can add. There's nothing I can add to that. It's a perfect salvation that he gives us freely by grace. He doesn't ask us to pay him back. There's no way we could ever thank him enough. There's no way we could ever make it worth his while. You can never be worthy enough of the sacrifice that Jesus paid on the cross. We can never repay him. But the good news is that he doesn't ask us to repay him. He doesn't ask us to. All he asks is that we receive it by faith. That we receive it and that, we, and that he'll make us his own and he'll adopt us into his family. that we don't deserve it simply because he loves us. He'll give us a perfect and complete salvation. What we celebrate today is that Jesus, he didn't stay in the grave. He didn't stay dead, that he's alive right now, that he will one day return. Jesus rose from the dead, he defeated death, the death that we so fear. The resurrection is the undoing of what Adam's sin did to the world and did to us. God said, you will surely die and all who are in Adam still in their sin, in their unbelief, will die. Not just once, but they'll die in the deepest sense. They'll die forever. That's the curse of sin. An unpayable debt, unpayable by any ordinary human. The eternal hell. But Jesus, being no ordinary man, Jesus paid the price. God in the flesh, when he paid that debt, he paid it in full. He drank the cursed cup of death for all who trust in him so that we don't have to. He drank it all the way dry. There's nothing left for us to take. He did it for all who are in him, united to him by faith. He died for us. And now death can't have us. Death can't have a righteous man because death is a punishment for sin. But if that sin has already been punished, then a just God will not punish the same sin twice. We know that 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 curse has been fully exhausted, that that penalty of death has been fully taken because Jesus rose. That's the evidence. He rose from the dead. Death could no longer hold him once the penalty had been fully paid. You know, if Jesus were still in the grave, we might conclude that he had tried to pay the debt for our sin, but he failed. Or perhaps he was, he was still under that curse, that he was still paying for our sins. And if Christ were still paying the penalty of our sins, what hope would we have? What hope would we have that when we came to die, that there still wouldn't be more left for us to pay? But Jesus, he is alive. He has risen. The tomb is empty. It is finished. And we who believe in Christ now have an unshakable hope. We have promises worth believing made by a God who never lies, who always keeps his word, even when it costs him the cross. Death can't have a righteous man. Death can't have a righteous woman. And by faith, when we trust in Christ, all of our charges are dropped, paid for in full, and we are declared righteous before God. And death can't have us, not finally. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we too will be raised with him to live forever with him. This is the promise for all who believe. Everlasting life. So in closing... The curse of sin was death. The resurrection of Christ reversed the curse. The resurrection reversed the curse. This is the deeper meaning of Easter Sunday. To reject the one who gave you life and offers you eternal life is to embrace the curse of death. But Jesus' death And resurrection reversed that curse for all who believe in him. The wages of sin is death, just as God had warned. Jesus came and died for sinners, just as God had promised. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, just as he had said. And now all who believe in him will not perish we will have everlasting life and nothing can pluck us from his hand we will live with him forever just as he promised that's the joy that we celebrate today as believers in Christ let's go to this God in prayer the God who never lies the God who is faithful dear Heavenly Father We thank you that you are faithful to your promises. Lord, you never lie. You always keep your word. Even when it costs you so much, you are true. And Lord, now, as those who believe in you, as those who trust in you for salvation, we know that when you have been faithful when it costs you so much, that all of your promises will come true, that you are faithful in much lesser things. Lord, you care for us. You know what we're going through, even right now. Help us in the midst of this confusion, in the midst of this uncertainty, to look to you who rose from the dead, to set our eyes and our our minds on the empty tomb, to think on those things which are above, where Christ is even now seated at the right hand of the Father, and our life is hid, with Christ on high. Nothing will take that life from us. Oh Lord, help us to rejoice in that hope today. Thank you for coming for us and for dying and rising from the dead, reversing the curse for us. I pray all these things in Jesus name. Amen. All right. Well, Thank you, for, uh, thank you for listening. It's kind of a, a little different Easter sermon in some ways. We went all the way back to Eden and ended up with empty tomb. But thank you for listening. And uh, if you have any questions about the message, um, please email me. Um, I'd be happy to talk more. And, yeah, also ways that we can be praying for one another. Um, I'll send out an email after this, and let's, let's keep lifting one another up in our, in our prayers. I know that um, some of us are going through difficult things right now, and so let's bear one another's burdens uh, as we, even as we celebrate Easter today. So that's all I have for now. Um, did anyone else have anything? Uh, Brother Jim. Can you hear me, Ben? Ben? I can hear you. Yes, sir. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and mute you, and we'll sing, and then we can all unmute everybody, and we'll share. All right. Sounds good. Providential. We believe this song was providential, that was brought to us at this time. We were thinking, God be with you until we meet, like, next Sunday, and now it may be a while before we meet again. Yeah, let me let me share one let me share one thought about that, you know. It's we're in a lot of uncertainty, but one of the promises that God's given us but let's remember is that uh, he's promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So that and that if the gates of hell won't prevail against his church, then certainly a virus won't, won't prevail against his church. So we may be limited as to what we can do for a, for a time but God will prevail. And we will, I trust we will be back together one of these days. (laughs) And, uh, you know, even right now, God is doing so many things that we don't even see. So let's keep that in mind. Let's trust. Let's be hopeful. And, uh, let's be thinking, let's be praying for, you know, what, how can God be using this time lives and how might he be teaching us even during this season?